Good evening, everybody. It's um, Wednesday, 24th of August. You're watching Resistance TV, and thank you for joining us this evening. Um, so far in our Sex in the Summer season, uh, we've mostly been focusing on the impacts of gender ideology on adult women. So we've looked at that in terms of free speech within the Labour Party, particularly. We've looked at it in respect of um, women within prisons. And we've also looked at it in respect of policing and the strip searching policy. Um, so this evening, our guest is a psychotherapist, a speaker, an author and a podcaster um, called Stella O'Malley. Um, who has many years professional experience of working with parents and children and more recently founded the organisation Genspect. And tonight Stella's here to help us bring the focus into the direct impacts of gender ideology on the health and well-being of children and young people, as well as on their parents, um, as well as on the parental bonds between parents and children, and also the impacts on clinicians who work with children and families um, to help them through issues such as gender confusion or gender dysphoria. Um, so just a quick welcome to those of you that are in the chat. Thank you for joining us this evening. Um, and please, if we, we'd like to encourage you to take part in uh, comments in the chat, but also um, questions as well. And we will come back to those in the last sort of 15 minutes of the session and pose some of your questions to Stella. So welcome, Stella. Thank you very much for coming along this evening. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Sir. It's good to have you here. Um, so um, I know that you've spoken many times about this issue in depth through various formats, through your writing and, and through interviews and so on. Um, but Within the left, particularly, we've got a lot of suppression around this issue. So there'll be a lot of people listening who haven't really had an opportunity to look at this from a sort of healthcare and well-being perspective or to hear a professional perspective and some, some professional insight on this as well. Um, so that, that's what we're kind of trying to bring to people this evening, rather than just a, a politicised topic that's quite distant from people, to actually kind of bring a closer lens on it for, from your perspective. Um, so my first question, really, it's in relation to therapy, the kinds of therapy that, that psychotherapists offer, not necessarily in relation to gender dysphoria, but just in general. Like, how much does it vary between one psychotherapist and another? Like, is there a, obviously there'll be recognised good practice, but beyond that, how much variation is there in, in the approach that you tend to take? It's a great question. I wish more people asked that question. There's huge differences in the therapy that you get. So people think, oh, I need to go to therapy and they ring up, you know, they look online, they get a recommendation and they go with that. And actually who you get really matters. It's very like teaching. One person will say, that's a great teacher. You know, they saved my life. They were brilliant. And another person will say, I had that teacher. She was awful. She was absolutely awful. It's kind of the same with, with, with therapy. And what the studies have shown that it doesn't really matter about your technique as much as the relationship. And what they found in therapy, it's, it's the therapeutic relationship, that your relationship, the therapist's relationship with the client is everything. And it makes a huge difference. But within that, there are kind of three main strands. Now, I'm, I'm being very basic here, but the, the kind of big, big strands would be psychoanalysis, which would be the old style Woody Allen, which would be very, <laughs> I would argue you'd have to have an awful lot of time and probably an awful lot of money to be able to have psychoanalysis, because sometimes you're seeing the, the analyst maybe three times a week for many years and, you know, serious commitment and asks questions, I think, of therapy. Sh should we be seeing somebody for so long? But then there is the kind of the Carl Rogers human humanist kind of person centered, which I would have learned a lot about when I was studying, which is very much the client is the expert. Let them lead the way. 
And some people have criticized that as kind of nodding dog therapy because somebody can be there for a long, long time without mm -hmm. any change. And so then in came up the kind of more active directive kind of therapies, which is, let's say, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's very active, challenging, giving tasks. And one person could just say, I hate that. I don't want to be given a task. I want somebody to listen to me. So it depends on the person. Okay. So um, with respect to, to gender confusion or gender dysphoria, um, I know I know that there hasn't been I mean there's the cast report kind of pointed out to us that there hasn't really it's not only not been agreement necessarily amongst clinicians as to how to approach that issue with young people and with their parents but in in many cases they've been almost diametrically opposed uh, approaches and some therapists have felt sort of um, compelled to offer certain approaches of therapy more mm. affirmative models when they felt ethically um, compromised in doing so I mean could you tell us a little bit more about Genspect about why you set Genspect up thoughtful therapists and what some of the differences are with regards approaches psychotherapists might take with, with this issue yeah very much so so until until about 10 years ago, conventional therapy on every level explores the issue with the client. And that's mm -hmm. what you do. So anybody who comes in, if you came in to me and you said you wanted to leave your partner, we would explore it. And other things could emerge. And that would be conventional, traditional talk therapy. Then about 10 years ago, very only specifically for the, for the, the world of gender, a concept called gender affirmative therapy. Uh, model of care came in and the concept was that really the therapist wasn't a therapist the therapist was more a facilitator and the job mm -hmm. of the therapist who gives gender affirmative uh, care is to facilitate medical transition and mm -hmm. so it's very heavy kind of emphasis on the medical model and if somebody came to me and I was I was to be a gender affirmative therapist my job is not only to affirm but to confirm yeah. all of their beliefs around their gender identity and to facilitate so that they could get medical intervention as soon as they wish at mm -hmm. any age. And that goes as young as two or one and a half. So it's, it's really like very, it's not even, you wouldn't even say child centered, you'd say it's child led. Mm -hmm. well, that is a massive change. And there is no other condition in, in psychology that I know of where the, 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 the child, for example, leads and the child self-diagnoses and the child suggests the treatment path. Mm -hmm. This is all very, very unusual, very, very unconventional, and very much um, based upon what I would argue is a presumption that being gay is the same as being trans. Right. And therefore, this has nothing to do with mental health. They might have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, but it's based upon a kind of a, a, a depth, a kind of a soul within you. And it's mm -hmm. a gender soul. And this is what, what your true self is. Yeah, it's your true yeah. self, whatever that yeah. means. Very, yeah. very to me, as, a, as an Irish Catholic, it reminds me of my, my mother talking about my Catholic soul. I don't right. think I have a Catholic soul. She says, you do. <laughs> 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 I have no option. And it's unfalsifiable, if you follow mm. me. And that's what the gender identity is within you. And so it's all based upon a theory about gender identity that we have mm. it within us. And it's very much conflated with what being gay is. Being gay is one, being trans is the other. It's like mm -hmm. being trans, being gay is now, being trans is considered being gay in the 21st century or something. It's been a huge leap and mm -hmm. it was never considered that before. It's a yeah. new concept 
And it has meant there's been a huge chilling effect on therapists mm -hmm. because therapists thought, oh, I don't know anything about this. I, mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable not exploring issues because that's why I'm in therapy. That's why yeah. I am a therapist. And so I'm just going to refer on to gender affirmative clinics because I don't know what to do. And mm -hmm. that's why there's huge waiting lists for all these gender okay. clinics because therapists won't touch it. Therapists okay. are afraid to touch it. They won't touch it. They're not quite sure what to do with it. No. Well, what? So before this ideology arrived that says that being trans is the same thing as being gay, it's just something you're born with, it's your real true self. Before that happened, what sort of approach was taken to someone who was confused about their gender? Like what sort of age would they normally be showing up with that complaint? What gender would they be? Yeah. And how do people um, respond? Yeah. Right. Up until again, about 10 years ago, everything changed about 10 years ago. And we're seeing the difference. And that's why we're talking about it, because up until 10 mm -hmm. years ago, it was tiny numbers and was two very different cohorts. It was very small little boys, mm -hmm. um, like we're talking three, four, five year olds who generally turned out to be gay. These are very effeminate mm -hmm. little boys that we all spotted when we were kids. Yeah. And secondly, middle aged males. OK, and they were the two groups. They yeah. were the people who wanted a uh, medical transition and arguably those middle aged males who did end up transitioning have changed a lot of policies and changed a lot of our approaches to mm -hmm. what is gender as such and what is medical transition. Mm -hmm. And out of nowhere in the last 10 years, it came in like a rocket. There's been an extraordinary rise among teenagers. Teenagers never came. Mm. in any mm. sort of numbers looking for tr gender transition and mm. female teenagers were just absolutely never there they were just mm. absolutely when I say never I mean incredibly seldom mm. and so it's a whole new cohort that arrived with this which mm. which, is, which opens up more questions I think than any, because why why would suddenly 10 years ago loads of female adolescents seek medical transition and they never have before and yeah. why isn't the corresponding females like me who's 47 why aren't we now that it's more accepted yes. why aren't we in our droves beating the the doors of the clinic down because yeah yeah that, that would explain more acceptance but yeah we're not yeah so that so this so this increase if it was just a natural um result of greater social acceptance of being trans similar to what we had with people you know being able to come out as gay and not get beaten exactly. up or abused or whatever for that if it was the same thing you'd expect to see an equal ish number of people maybe male and female or, or yeah yeah One, it would be an equal ish number you like you say yeah. of, of male female and you'd see corresponding in the other in the other age groups you wouldn't yeah. see this extraordinary rise in adolescent and mm. literally no rise in the 40 something or when yes. I say no rise, you know very very little amongst it's women not, particularly yeah it doesn't make sense yeah no, it doesn't make no. sense the numbers are so strangely unbalanced all you can mm. do is say there must be more going on. Yes, that we don't really know what we're dealing yeah. with or what we're looking we at. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know whether you've heard of Novara Media, but they're a left-wing sort of media outlet. And they recently put um, an article out called, what was it? How to Navigate Britain's Broken Trans Healthcare System. Um, and the, the quote was, um, keep it simple. They were kind of encouraging young trans people to, or people who, young people who were gender questioning, to keep things simple when they see the gender clinic, when they get their referral and they get in front of a specialist, to not really talk about general sort of mental health um, concerns, but to keep it very focused on, I'm here 
because I'm trans and I'd like some HRT and I've got my papers and to just keep it very narrowly focused on that. I'm not sure whether the purpose of it was so that they wouldn't be converted, you know, this thing about conversion therapy or whether they would get through the system a lot quicker because there's this huge weight. I'm not sure what, what the purpose of it was, but that came out. But there was another um, thing that they'd tweeted out or put out, which also um, said, uh, JK Rowling is right. Autistic people are for, far more likely to be transgender. That doesn't make them any less deserving of gender affirming care. So there's a very sort of strong push, it seems, within the sort of more politicized, um, not from the clinician point of view necessarily, but from the politics side of things to say that, yes, there are, you know, the cast review has found that there's far more girls now in their teens than boys and that's a, a, of concern and we need to find out more about that and we're seeing more a, a much higher proportion of children who are looked after they're in care much higher proportion of children who have autism and other sort of neurodiverse conditions and we need to find out more about that and be some, somewhat cautious about how we're approaching this but but people who are involved in the political side of it who are saying no this is your gendered soul you know you need to just be affirmed in it are kind of saying it doesn't matter that you're autistic you still should be affirmed that that you know there's mm. nothing remarkable about that I mean have you got any particular thoughts on that go on yeah, <laughs> thought you might yeah for starters to keep it simple bit um I am not I think we need to complexify the issue. I, I think this idea of keeping things simple, keep it simple and give me the, the give me the hormones. Keep yes. it simple and give me the medical interventions. Sometimes this this kind of this new generation, contemporary world that we live in, we're living in slogans mm -hmm. and they they can be very pat and they don't give much room for complexity or nuance. And and that's not me trying to sly in any concepts. It's just me saying, honestly, we live in a very sophisticated, complex world. And to keep it simple is probably um, re reducing the thoughts and probably not serving um, the issue well. I saw somebody said why why people in care is a trauma. And I just want to talk a little bit about the cohort because it's, it's not simple. This is a dense subject that it took me years to start speaking about because yeah. I'm like, wow, th there's so much to learn. If you think this is simple, you've missed it. You've missed mm -hmm. so many things if you think this is simple. But yeah. one of the reasons I would argue that ch children in care is that um, maybe they're seeking their identity. Maybe they have an awful lot of um, people who are working with them who maybe perhaps might be part of, of the kind of the more, a, a certain generation of, of, of workers who are very, very into gender identity and as in, they're in their 20s and it's kind mm -hmm. of, it's a very hot topic, which leads into the issue that I, I think I, I, I most want to point out here is that politics have got in the way of mental health here. And okay. politics have got in, in a way that they really, it's so unfortunate when politics get into mental health or medical care. We saw it with abortion over in America. It's just so nasty. It's so awful. Politics, yeah. in a way, getting into mental me, medical care is really frightening when it happens because everything gets, I do think the patient gets lost, the person mm -hmm. who, who needs care, often a very vulnerable person really uh really gets lost what was the second point you said one was about simple and this uh, they, they said well they, yeah they said don't share that information with you or something along the lines of yeah keep mm. it simple just say you'd like the hrt say that you've got the necessary documents and also that um that 
J.K. Rowling is right oh. just because you have autism. The so autism. why, sh- why shouldn't you be yeah. affirmed? That's anyway, the point know. I wanted to, 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 yeah. to continue with, the autism. The autistic point is really very interesting. There's a, there's a, there's a study from, a peer-reviewed study from the uh, Tavistock, um, which has kind of received a very, very negative review in recent months from an independent reviewer, Dr. Hilary Haas. But uh, that study showed 48% of the t- adolescents presenting were autistic. We're talking wow. high numbers of autism. Wow in this cohort and when you look at autism and when you study autism you'll realize they are very often gender non-conforming they're very often societally non-conforming they don't Mm -hmm. follow silly rules if you follow me they don't follow rules that don't make sense to them they Mm -hmm. want to wear the clothes they want to wear and they don't really care whether it's a dress or shorts it's what they want to wear if you follow Mm -hmm. me themselves and um wouldn't it be great if we lived in a society where that didn't lead to any medical interventions, that it little boy could run around in a dress, or mm-hmm. you know, that there's no kind of presumption. To call that trans to me is making a leap that mm-hmm. I would be comfortable with. I think being gender non-conforming is something that society needs to kind of accept. That mm-hmm. you can live like there's lots of ways to be a woman, there's lots of ways to be a man, and to to kind of reduce it to kind of clothes or activities or games is very reductive and very very constraining for lots of people and Mm. people who are autistic particularly don't like silly mindless rules around clothes or things they just want you know they want the red cup and the green Mm. jumper and that's what they want and there's a black and white thinking with the autistic mind that we need to be very gentle and 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 caring about because that you could say explains a lot around the pronouns and things like that. If an awful lot of them are autistic and they are people who are seeking medical transition, they will think that if you say I'm female, then I am because the words are enough because yeah. there's a literal understanding. They don't, they don't um, understand things on a metaphorical level as much. They're more mm-hmm. literal. And so I remember I knew a girl who was autistic and her mother and we were talking and she was identifying a trans at the time. She isn't anymore. And I was talking to her about testosterone. And I was saying, if you put testosterone in a female body, you have huge impact. Like it's very, very harsh on the body. Mm-hmm. And it can lead to a lot of kind of vaginal infections. It can lead to an awful lot of pain on intercourse. It can lead to all sorts of infertility. It's a, it's a huge event. And she was autistic and she said, oh, no, no, no. But it wouldn't for me because I'm male because I go by he, him. Yeah. So there's an autistic person with a very literal understanding. Mm-hmm. If you call me he, him, you can give me testosterone and it won't impact my body. Mm. So it shows to me that how you really, you really need to understand that changing a person's perception of who they are, we shouldn't do it lightly, especially mm. if they're vulnerable. And it's like he was saying, I mean, if if we were a more accepting society that there's such a thing as gender nonconformity, mm. we're not all the same. You know, mm. we don't all express how we feel in the same way. We don't all like to dress in the same way, depending on whether we're male or female. And that's OK. You know, if schools didn't have prescriptive expectations with regards uniform and things like that, then would that save, in your view, a lot of children from undergoing what can be lifelong med- medicalization? And a very heavy medical burden on the body. Even if you're the most pro-trans person in the world, it's very heavy. It's very difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult physically on the body, mm-hmm. not alone all the all the surgeries. 
But um, yeah, and to go back to that piece that said, yeah, they're all lots of autistic people are trans. And I would argue, no, 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 lots of autistic people are gender nonconforming. And that's a different yeah. emphasis. That's a different yeah. kind of it's the same thing, but looking at it in a different way. One person could say it's trans and another person could say it's it's gender nonconformity. I would yeah. love that we could bring in a society where gender nonconformity didn't need to be boxed up, didn't need to be medicalized, didn't need to be labeled. And mm. kids and adults could be gender nonconforming without any big mm. medical treatment. Big deal. Yeah. 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 As, and as like you say, sometimes when a child is gender nonconforming, that can be the first indication that they're actually going to grow up to be same sex attracted, which is, but that's not always the case. So, um, so mm -hmm. far on the shows that we've done, I think the three women that I've interviewed have all said to me that they were that gender non-conforming girl when they were a kid. I mean, I wasn't. I was pretty much dolls and fairies and <laughs> all that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, but I, I find it interesting because I've heard so many women who are sort of feminists who are involved, you know, in, in left politics or whatever, about this issue have said, God, you know, that was me. I was that kid. And I shudder to think of what I might have done to my body thinking that I was doing the right thing and also that a lot of children when they're approaching um, puberty it's not a comfortable time for a lot of children and a lot of children really would like to bypass that process um, as well so it's kind of I don't know I'm, I see this and I hear it from a lot of women and, and and gay men I've heard as well saying that they were gender non-conforming as a child grew up went through puberty and it turned out that they were gay and they're so so glad that they didn't do anything that would have harmed their fertility their sexual function caused them osteoporosis or any of these things that that, that we're hearing about happening to, to children's bodies and huge impacts yeah I was I was that myself I had I was very gender uh, non-conforming and I wanted to be a boy for many years and puberty was terrible for me because I I didn't want to be a girl or a woman. And it, it was a really painful time. It was a horrible time. But puberty also was the time where, um, because I was allowed to have puberty, I started to fancy other people. And so the focus left me as such and went to other people. Mm -hmm. When you stop puberty, you're yeah. stopping a sexual awakening. And you're right. stopping sexual development. And we've mm. never done that to humans ever before. Mm. And it's the most high-handed authoritarian thing I've ever seen to stop mm. a child's sexual development and sexual awakening. Mm. And between 10 and 20, the child goes from pre-sexual usually to, to sexual. And we've never stopped it before. And now we're stopping it. And it chills me, the, the mm. impact that must have. Because they remain childlike. So they kind of find sex, just like anybody under 10, a bit squeamish, a bit weird, but mm. they're 16. Yes. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. an extraordinary thing to do on a child. So a puberty blocker, if we can just talk a little in a little bit more depth about that, that is something that would be taken before puberty. Um, and it will block things like brain maturation, brain development through those teenage years, as well as suppress secondary sex characteristics. What do we know about what other effects that has on on children well we don't know because this is a yeah. this is an ongoing experiment it's a it's a medical experiment on children that we, we we've we don't know the results of what we do know is in around about 1980 they brought in a concept called puberty blockers and it was a great idea it was for children with precocious puberty so so a child who went into puberty at maybe four mm -hmm. and they would block their puberty until they were ready to go into a proper puberty let's say at about 10 which is mm. you know the the typical age 
Mm. And that's why they were designed and that's why they were created. And then um, in the kind of 90s stroke noughties, a clinic in Holland decided in an extraordinarily ambitious and perhaps reckless piece of experimentation, decided to stop the puberty of children who might seek to medical transition in the future. Mm. And how they did this was they gave them this very stringent process, which I now now I know children have gone through that clinic. It's not so stringent, but they said it was very stringent. And uh, they uh, said as if they were some forms of gods, these clinicians in, in the Dutch clinic, they could see into the child's eyes and they could know which child was going to remain identifying as as trans as trans and which mm-hmm. child was going to grow out of it they would know so they would say you can't go forward but you can you mm-hmm. can't you. now I remember me I remember what I was getting I would have convinced any adult I know yeah. I would have I had it for many many years these gender dis- distress and it didn't go away easily and I was a very forceful personality so I was like thinking sure that's to do with force of personality as opposed to deep distress you know some mm-hmm. kids just go quiet and they wouldn't mm-hmm. tell you and another kid would be like banging the doors down and I would have been banging the doors down and so this clinic brought it in they called it the Dutch protocol in about 2008 2009 all these American clinicians came over they decided it was the gold standard of pediatric uh, gender care, all new, all experimentation, brought it over to America. From then on, they changed the guidelines so that therapists like myself are just facilitators. And it has sprung out as, as a huge issue. Suddenly, a huge amount of adolescents are identifying as trans. They all want to get puberty blockers. By the way, you don't get it before puberty. You get it just when you start puberty. Okay. Just the beginnings of it. And mm-hmm. they have... On, a, on an extraordinarily uh, reckless experiment on these children, they've stopped their sexual development. So if mm. they were gay, they don't know because mm. their sexual development was, has been stopped. Or if you stop your sexual development, if you stop my sexual development and I was 10, my, my vagina would stop growing. It would remain as a 10 year old. It's the same for a little boy. And so you would grow up, you'd be 13, 14, 15, and it would remain the sexual characteristics of a 10 year old, if you follow me, because you've blocked the the growth. And Mm -hmm. I would argue that would create a very out of sync feeling with your body Mm -hmm. because one one part of your body isn't growing Mm -hmm. and everything else is, if you follow me. And not only that, you've no sexual awakening. You saw that maybe if any of you have watched Jazz Jennings, she's a kid who's a trans kid, the first trans kid really um, that anybody has documented. And she was she came out as a trans kid in about 2006, 2007. And they blocked her puberty. And when all the girls started fancying the boys and the boys fancying the boys and the girls fancying the girls, she had nothing to add to that conversation. And she ended up mm. homeschooling. She was out of sync. Mm. Anyway, long story short, is we now have this situation where these kids who've been blocked sexually and then they go through a, a chemical puberty Mm-hmm. when they're of age maybe 17 18 and so the chemical puberty is of the opposite sex okay. we've never done this before it's a chemically induced puberty we don't know what happens to your brain when you mm-hmm. don't fancy people when you don't have a sexual awakening at 12 13 14 mm-hmm. we don't know because we've no way of getting into the brain to figure it out but yeah. we are noticing quite worrying results mm-hmm. of this extraordinary experiment mm-hmm. So it's not because you hear about people who've detransitioned, um, and I know that the, the, there are a number of kids uh, or families that are taking the Tavistock 
clinic to court um, on the basis that they feel that they haven't been adequately informed of what the potential outcomes might be and that they haven't been given a realistic idea of whether they can actually change sex or what transition is going to look like. But it's so what you, it sounds like you're saying is that it's not even that they haven't been informed that it's that the clinicians themselves can't say because they, they don't, don't know. know. It's a complete experiment. Yeah. The ethics yeah. of it are mind blowing. And it goes back to yeah. the child led. They say, oh, we just listen to the child. And I'm like, well, do, would you listen to the child over their, their diabetes care? Well, like, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Listen to the child? Because whatever happened to kind of, I studied it for seven years and then I was an intern and then I became an expert from studying it. You know, whatever mm -hmm. happened to that for starters? Yes. But yeah. the, the, the second thing is, yeah, like, for example, Kira Bell would be a well-known case. I was talking, I, I had a lovely chat with Kira today and she's doing very well. But like, she she was a very traumatized child, teenager, very like myself, but she lived 30 years later and um, she ended up going to the Tavistock. They affirmed her because they said she said she was a boy and they listened to the kid and they said if she says she's a boy, she's a boy. If she says she wants puberty blockers, she gets puberty blockers. So they gave her puberty blockers. And then a little bit later, they gave her the cross sex hormones, which is mm. the kind of next step. Then they gave her the mastectomy, which is what she wanted. She was very traumatized. She'd had a very difficult childhood. And then a few years later, when she came into her early 20s, she kind of had a reckoning and realized I was traumatized. What the hell were they doing? Why were they listening to me? I was all over the place. I was upset. Mm. And she realized that affirmative care might be kind in the moment, but was very cruel in the long term. Yeah. Because it nodded along in her hour of need, didn't listen to any of her kind of effective, metaphorical, symbolic cries of help where she was like, I, I'm lost and I don't know who I am. Mm. That didn't get read. Instead, it was, I want puberty blockers, give them to me. And they gave it to her. Mm. And Many detransitioners like Kira have now started speaking out. So you asked me about Genspect earlier. I founded Genspect about a year ago because I want to bring a rational voice to gender. I'm very aware that it's a toxic debate and I'm trying to bring a voice of reasonability and rationality to it. And it was very much because so many parents had come to me with utter distress about how their children were being treated in this very, very kind of mindless manner, being led into medical interventions mm. and in genspect we have a program where we help detransitioners because we believe detransitioners have been very badly treated and mm. when i first started following for example detrans reddit there was there was about there was less than a thousand members on this and i urge anybody who's watching to go look up detrans reddit you'll find it very easily there was less than a thousand members on it and uh, now there's over thirty-seven thousand. and i started following it in about 2019 and what is it now, 2022, and there's over 37,000. Mm -hmm. That's not to say they're all detransitioners. They're not. They're, mm -hmm. I think the moderators say about a third of them are detransitioners, mm -hmm. which still makes up thousands. But if you read the story, you'll see again and again and again, these were young kids who were very distressed, who were affirmed when they needed help and support mm -hmm. and gentleness and compassion, and they yeah. didn't get it. And so in Genspec, we've started a kind of a program where we offer them and we're helping to pay for their counselling and other Amazing. Yeah, other things just to help them out because we feel they're the minority mm -hmm. within the minority. They've been mm -hmm. silenced and treated incredibly badly by mm -hmm. various different people. And I have to say, like you mentioned the left earlier, the left have been incredibly silencing in almost a Stalinist kind of way. Yeah. of silencing any kind of debate, silencing any kind of questions, any sort of negativity. It's been a shocking 
um, revelation to me to watch how authoritarian the left can be. I thought the left were the woolly-minded nice side. (laughs) So did I. Yeah, and what I've seen is the left can be a hard line. We don't care about the individual. For the good of it all, we will suppress the voice of detransitioners. We don't care that there's detransitioners Mm. there because Mm. we need to promote. We've decided in a very kind of institutional level, we're promoting the voice of transitioners, so we cannot give any voice to detransitioners. It's actually... I've seen the kind of been to the belly of the beast and it, it has been a horrible sight. It's it's like you said before, isn't it? It's a very blanket application of a viewpoint which is very simplistic to an issue which is actually very complex, very nuanced, yeah. with a lot of very, yeah. very vulnerable young people yeah. involved in it. I mean, so in terms of, I want to ask you about parents, but before we come on to that, um, mm. in your view, based on the parents and the children that you've seen, Is this, how much of this is about kind of gender stereotypes and confusion around that? How much of it is about gender nonconformity that they're probably going to grow out of? How much of it is influenced by online um, agendas and trends and influences and things like that? What is this? Is this, is, is gender dysphoria a genuine thing? Do, if so, is that just for a small minority of people who show up saying that they're confused about their gender? And does the approach to ge- to genuine gender dysphoria, if that exists, does it need to be something more along the lines of body dysmorphia or something like that within anorexia? I mean, can you unpick some of that for us a little bit from your point of view? Yeah, it's really it's really hard to figure it out. I know a lot of people say gender dysphoria doesn't exist because gender is a social construct, and yeah, I, I'm not really know. I don't really know what to say about that because, you know, I had my own issues now. Do you want to call it gender dysphoria? Do you want to call it sex dysphoria? It's like the conversations about bipolar. It's gone through loads of different names. Schizophrenia, it's gone through loads of different names. We kind of know what it is. Does it exist? Yes, it does. Do we argue about the name? ADHD is a terrible name for mm-hmm. that condition. It's yeah. just a name. The point is the condition. And the condition is, you you know, are the feeling or, you know, the the experience. And certainly when I wanted to be a boy, I really wanted to be a boy. That's what I wanted to be. Is that anything to do with social constructs or was that because I wanted to be on the boys team on every level? I felt I'd be better as a boy. I still think I'd be better better (laughs) as a boy. But, you know, I learned to live with my body because you kind of, you know, coming of age means you, you have a reckoning with yourself and you realize there's some things I have to just accept about my life. You know, would I change the circumstances of my birth, I probably would. Would mm. I change my parents, my hometown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Change it all. But you can't. That's mm-hmm. that's what life is is kind of given us. Mm. And so there is that. And a lot of the children who are like me, who want to be the opposite sex, generally often, not always, grow up to get be gay. I didn't grow up to be gay, but most of them do. Mm-hmm. Certainly the boys very much so. And then there's a whole online phenomenon that is, seems to be a very different experience. And this is the teenagers. And this is specifically the teenage girls. And when you look at that, you think this isn't an awful lot to do with I want to be a boy. It's almost metaphorically I want to be a boy. But and, and I know Sasha Ayad, I do a, a podcast with Sasha Ayad called Gender yeah. and Wider Lens. I recommend it. It's fantastic. <laughs> it is. Thank Me too. Yes. Yeah. We love it. And um <laughs> You know, I remember Sasha saying very often these teenage girls, it's not so much I want to be a boy, but I don't feel pretty enough to be a girl. Mm -hmm. I don't 
feel I'm a girl. I don't feel good enough to be a girl. And I found with the boys, I don't feel man enough to be a boy. And so it's not quite what I would say is classic traditional gender or sex dysphoria, which is yeah. I want to be that opposite. It's more like I'm not good enough. I can't be a girl. I'm not mm. good enough to be a girl, which is a very different, I think, uh, feeling. Yeah. But those girls, it's huge amount of online contagion is going on there. They have found there's nothing more alluring in life than to be told you can be somebody different. And that person who's going to be different is probably going to be very good looking and very popular and edgy and have a huge community and be mm -hmm. part of the zeitgeist. And there's almost nothing more alluring than that and that you'll have a different name and nobody will be able to refer to the old name, the old person, that old, humiliated, awkward, autistic, maybe, or certainly distressed self. Nobody will be able to refer to that. You're going to be a new person, very like that YouTube social media influencer that you like, who's also trans. You'll be mm -hmm. like them. And the kids who are vulnerable and gullible and cerebral and very disconnected with their body and filled with self-loathing in their droves to go to this idea that they can be a new person. We never, ever offered that before in life. We never no. told people you can be somebody different. Mm. And they've gone for it. They've said, mm. wow, yes, I'll be somebody different. I remember E.E. E. Cummings in a poem way back in the day, like I'm talking about 100 years ago, he said, something along the lines of there's a universe next door are you coming and I remember thinking I think I'd go like if somebody <laughs> said do you want to go and I'm like yeah and that's yeah. what this is it's like you can be a different person do you want yeah. to be yeah. mm -hmm. and they jump at it but I do want to say before before I, I I go for any further on this point you know before anorexia came in maybe in the 1970s there was very 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 few um examples of anorexia it was you know freakishly unusual it was in the medical literature but it was very unusual and when it came in it came in and it stayed as a manifestation mm -hmm. specifically the canaries in the coal mine were the teenage girls and it mm -hmm. spread in a very uh socially contagious way it spread among teenage girls as a way to manifest distress and mm -hmm. after anorexia came in bulimia came in yeah, and again yeah spread among teenage girls it's not confined to teenage girls other people mm -hmm. can get it but it's mm -hmm. most common among teenage girls and it spreads like mm -hmm. a like a forest fire among yeah. teenage girls when it comes in the yeah. social contagion and after bulimia came cutting and another yes. way to manifest distress again it started among teenage girls and it spread to loads of different cohorts and it mm -hmm. stays a way of managing distress mm -hmm. and now what has come in gender dysphoria it's mm. come in. It was never so seen before among adolescent girls. It's a mm. way of manifesting distress. And yet again, there's a huge social contagion. To me, it's a golden thread. If you want to see what is going on with teenage girls, we've mm. shown uh, teenage girls have shown the world for over 50 years now, specifically in that rise of the teenage girl and the glorification of youth and the young teenage girl's body. Within that, teenage girls have shouted no you're mm -hmm. making me hate myself. You're making me self-conscious. You're making me sexualized before I'm ready. And yeah. I hate I hate my body as a result. Mm -hmm. They've consistently shown us for decades how hard it is to live in this. And we're still not listening. Yeah. So if you've got, so you you have more girls, more teenage girls, presumably then, um, that, that you will see as a therapist. What is it like for a parent? How much, 
how much um, pressure are parents under to go along with this, to affirm this with their child? Who is it that's putting pressure on parents? And how do they respond when they find a therapist who isn't saying to them, you have to affirm this, we can explore what's going on, that that's okay for us to do that? How do they respond then? When It's been yeah. very, very, very hard for, for parents. And that's primarily why I, I, I found, well, that's why I founded Genspect. What happened was it was in a kind of, Mar- it was COVID, like March 2020. And I had loads of time. As you can see, I'm a big talker and I give a lot of talks. And suddenly COVID happened and it closed down. Mm. And so I was asked to give online support group meetings for parents. And I said, oh, yeah, sure, I'm free now. I might as well. And one meeting a week immediately turned into two meetings, three meetings, four meetings, five meetings. And they spread very quickly. And these parents were all saying the same thing. They were saying that there was a complete diagnostic overshadowing, i.e. these kids had ASD, ADHD, ADHD, eating disorders, anxiety. They had a lot of other diagnoses, but gender dysphoria was trumping all the other diagnoses and suppressing any sort of exploration of what might be going on once gender was was said. And that's all the kids all the parents were describing the same kid this is a cerebral awkward quirky um clever um we know those type we saw those type in school they were a bit geeky they were a bit swashy they didn't quite fit in they were a bit socially awkward Mm -hmm. and very gullible and very vulnerable that is the kid that Mm -hmm. generally gets very fallen very very into the gender thing and they spent an awful lot of time online and so these parents were def- devastated. We know the type. You know the type. We all know the type. They're a very specific type. And it was nothing to do with gender. This was to do with clever kids who were gullible, who mm. believed this idea that they could be somebody else and that somebody else would be very cool. Mm. And uh, because it was so shocking, and when I realized there was a huge secret network of parent groups all around the world who were frantically looking for therapists who might offer exploratory therapy rather than a nodding dog facilitation into heavy medical, heavy and aggressive early medicalization of their children. Mm. And I thought, oh, my God, what the hell is this world? There's Mm. thousands of them. And as a result of that, a year later, I formed Genspect as a kind of a coalition of parent groups and that we represent something like 18 parent groups over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, 20, 20 countries, sorry, somebody came in there and I, I just got distracted there. <laughs> um, so 18, 18 different organizations, um, mm-hmm. from, oh, 18, 18 different countries, 20 uh, different organizations. Right. And, yeah. Um, all saying the same thing, saying my kid needs better quality care than what is being mm-hmm. offered by the therapists. The mm-hmm. therapists are not giving them good quality care. The therapists are just fast tracking them into a medical program. I'm mm-hmm. looking for have genuine conventional psychological care for my my mm. kids, and that's why I find founded it. Brilliant. Um, just before, because we're nearly due to go to questions, that's why Sean's bobbed in for us. But just before we do, do you want to? Because I saw that you're running this project called the Bigger Picture Project, where you're gathering stories of uh, detransitioners, and you mentioned about your amazing podcast there as well. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the Bigger Picture Project? Who you're doing it for? Why you're doing it? Um, and how people can sort of find out more about that if they want to get involved. Um, yeah, what we're doing in Genspect is, and we'd love if people um, email Genspect and joined our membership list because then mm-hmm. we can show you can. We don't haunt you. It'll be once a month or so <laughs> that we'd send information out about what's going on because there's so many things going on. It's easy to miss it. But what we're running is it's called Beyond Transition, and it's a project to help people who are who have been hit and hurt 
by gender ideology. Most of them are detransitioners, not all of them. Some of them are lost in transition. Some of them feel that they've been very badly hurt and they shouldn't have transitioned, but now they're stuck with it and they don't know what to do. There's a lot of different ways to be hurt by gender ideology. And so we offer a kind of therapeutic support group. We offer to pay for some uh, counselling for people who've been hurt by this. And we offer a kind of, we're trying to go to start a database so we can get some numbers because the D-Trans Reddit is phenomenal, but it's it's a support group for detransitioners ran by detransitioners. And we're trying to offer, because they've been out in the kind of the Wild West for so long, they're a mm -hmm. self-monitoring group. And so they should be, and we support it in every way. There's some brilliant organizations like D-Trans Voices and detrans.org and you know, support D-Trans. There's a lot out there. But what we're trying to do in, in, in Genspect with Beyond Transition, which is the bigger project rather than the bigger picture is just one of the projects that we're doing in Beyond Transition. Beyond Transition is the big project. It's just to give help to mm -hmm. anybody who's been hurt by gender ideology. And so Amazing. if you'd like to support us, please do. We have a GoFundMe and things like that. Anything okay. to support this concept, you know. Brilliant. We'll put the links to all of your work. And there's a lot of stuff that you've that you've pioneered really and that you're um, involved in. So we'll put all of those links in the information below the video. I've seen our chat has been buzzing. It looks like there's debate going on there, Sean, and we've got quite a few people involved. Do you want to take it from yeah, here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I start on the, the chat, um, it's it's been very interesting. And um, I didn't realise the time, actually. I was carried away listening to uh, what you were saying. It was so interesting interesting I've learned something every week um, during this series and it's it is absolutely fascinating to actually get to hear the the other side of things and um, because people just won't talk about it um, you can't you can't have these kind of discussions um, in in the public um, so I'm really thankful uh, to Mandy and the the work that she's put in on this subject um, and also to you Stella to come on and, and talk to us about it um, because people need to know about these things um, there's no point in not talking about it we need to be educated fully into um, you know how these things work and um, what was interesting is we we had um, we've we've had somebody on who is the parent of um, a, a a girl um, she's transitioned from a boy and um, I just want to put his perspective to you um, he says when she was 18 my daughter started a oh sorry hang on um, yeah so when when she was 18 my daughter started at FE college she changed sex to being a girl and since then she has never been happier or more assertive the hormone treatment has been tough on her body she suffered a lot of acne but she is much happier she's now at university studying psychology so Stella O'Malley you need to understand that all teenagers get confused about sex in the past, we had what was expected and settled on being gay, but some people seem to be born with a desire to be female. I would say they also have the desire to be male as well. Um, if we adults are sensitive to that, we let them take the gender blockers, particularly if their parents supports them in this, because it is their body, not ours. Could I come in on that? Um, I, I hope... Yeah. I hope it continues to go well for this uh, kid who's in university. And I think, yeah, I, I really hope it all works out. I think life is long. I think not being able to have children, which is inevitable for somebody who has medically transitioned, won't really hit 
until at least late 20s, early 30s. I think um, who knows what that person will think at that point. I think the medical burden on the body, while it's a bit hard in the first couple of years, like like the, the father who sounds so loving and good for him for, for defending his rights. And I, I hope it works out well. But acne is one thing. I had acne as a kid. It, you know, it's whatever. But infertility is a whole other issue that has caused my generation of, of, of women an absolutely disorientating and devastating impact. And we won't know what these kids who've transitioned, we won't know what they think about their infertility for many years. It'll be 10 years at least before. I was, weirdly enough, I was told I was infertile when I was 25. I had endometriosis. And I didn't care. I was like, oh, yeah, right, really. I couldn't care. Yeah, right. Just it wasn't on my radar. I didn't really care. By the time I was 32, I was this breastfeeding earth mother who would walk across hot red coals for her her children. So I changed massively. And I've worked with so many people around infertility that I don't underestimate it. And what seems like a good idea today isn't necessarily the best idea in the long term. I don't know. Maybe some of these kids, it's going to be fine. Maybe it will be perfectly fine. And I love the fact that this father could could challenge me and we could argue it out. And all I've ever asked for in this is not that I have the answers, not that I think I'm right and he's wrong. I don't know. I don't know. All I've ever sought since I started to get into this in 2017 is could we have a debate and discussion about this? Because it feels very high handed to me. And it feels like we need to really think about a lot of these decisions because we don't know what the future is. And so that's all I uh, have. Who knows? And let's yeah. discuss it further. Mm. Which is what we're doing tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I want to thank Peter. For I'd like you to give, and give harder questions. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, the more, the more yeah. we can talk about it in a civilised manner, the more likely we'll have better outcomes for everybody. Exactly. Yeah, he, he did actually come back and he said, yeah. I think being able to have kids is no great deal. Loads of people don't want to have kids, Stella. There are far too many people in the world, aren't there? Mm. Bit controversial there, Peter. <laughs> I don't know. It's a biological thing that seems to come over people. I'm not sure about that. Lots of people don't want to have kids. Lots of people at 18 don't want to have kids. Not so many people in their 30s don't want to have kids. Mm. Okay. Know. We'll, we'll move on. <laughs> um, so thanks for that, Peter. That was a really interesting debate. Um, let's go to some more questions. Um, Kay Green said, right at the beginning, you were talking about um, children in care. Um, so Kay Green says, why children in care? Is it about trauma? So you were talking be. about the reasons why, why they may mm. want to, to change. You know, when you look at the cohorts, it's very specific. And there's, there's two big groups that would come out, let's say, for example, in within this 4,000% rise in, in, in girls who, who are seeking medical transition. And one is these are very often privileged, middle-class, white um, girls. That's one cohort, very strong. So when you look at anorexia, you think very similar, high achieving, clever, privileged kids as one group. And then there's a whole group who are in care, which is a very different group of kids. Do you follow me? Mm -hmm. And not necessarily uh, white. So it's two very extremely different groups. And sometimes I think I wonder, are they are they very much 
privileged white adults who are looking after these kids in care. <laughs> is that making a difference if you follow me? That's, that's one read I have of it. Another read of it is, as Kay Green said, is it trauma? Is this just trauma? Is you know, I know Oliver J James, the psychologist, said the most unhappy group that he could find in England and Ireland, in UK and Ireland today, was privileged, high achieving 15 year old girls. He specifically said they're a very unhappy group. So it could be trauma. It could also be an identity crisis in the in the classic form of it, as in who am I? Who am I? I don't know who I am. Who is my family? Who is my background? Who am, where am I? Who am I going? They have noticed that there's there's a, a, a very protective factor to not feeling gender dysphoric or not feeling that you want to seek medical transition is those from ethnic backgrounds who have a very strong family presence. So that identity is very strong in their family. That makes them a lot less likely to seek medical transition, to have an identity crisis because they know their identity. They're strong in their identity. So that, that was an interesting piece of research that I thought, oh, that might explain maybe those who are in care, they've lost who they are. They don't know who they are. Maybe. Who knows? We need more research. Um, okay. Fiona English says, sloganeering is the modus operandi of politics. Think uh, Boris Johnson and Brexit, get Brexit done, uh, yeah. or Trump. Uh, make America great again. Um, the gender slogans are of the same ilk, she says. Um, absolutely right, Stella. Politics interfering in medical care. Um, Mr. Thinly Sliced, love the name. Um, I'd love to know of any other elective medical treatments where a minor is the one in control. There are, there are none. There are none. Can I just say a little bit about the sloganeering? Sloganeering has gone into psychology. So, you know, if it feels good, do it. And if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. And just smile and, you know, <laughs> the body beautiful and things like this. And it, it's not great mental health. It's very basic and it might feel kind of good. My, my 14 year old generally parrots it all. And I'm like, it's, it's very basic and it doesn't. We contain multitudes as humans. We're complex. Mm -hmm. It, do, it doesn't really that that kind of basic kind of sloganeering about the human condition doesn't really, uh, to me, conceptualize what it is to be human. But sorry, keep going. No, that's <laughs> fine. Uh, lots more questions to get through. Um, Kay Lawrence says, is the prospect of heterosex now terrifying for girls because of porn access among the young? Are the expectations of young men influenced by porn? Is sexual abuse being normalized? Yeah, there does seem to be uh, an impact of the, the heavy use of porn, the huge rise in porn. I know I know anybody who's, you know, my age will say there was always porn and there was always a huge amount of it. I, I don't think the numbers bear that out. The access to high speed Wi-Fi and the, the prevalence of porn among young people it certainly never was in my offices as a psychotherapist the way it is now. We're talking about 11 year olds being exposed to, you know, bestiality and necrophilia and things that just these 11 year olds would have been looking at boobs 20 years ago. It, it's just not comparable what they're what they're being exposed to. And um, as a result, there's a hypersexualization among a generation of children who have more have been more infantilized on every other level, so they're not allowed out, they're not allowed to walk to school, they've barely walked down to the local shop, and yet they've been exposed to really complex, really shocking levels 
of of sex and pornography. And I don't think it's going very well for them. And I've found I've heard so many shocking stories of of girls and boys being exposed to such horrible, horrible, hardcore porn that has been really kind of quite shaping on their attitude towards sex. And I know, you know, uh, there was a brilliant film came out of um, uh, India. I can't think what it's called, something like gender dysphoria. And she talked about how people were fleeing from sex, that young girls and young boys, they've either become hypersexualized or they've shut down. For myself, I often think when I meet some, not all, but some people who are very wrapped up in gender identity, they have repressed their sexuality. And so it's a kind of a form of, of, of sexual repression. They'll talk about sex, they'll um, they'll speak about it, they will uh, talk about their gender identity forever, but their actual ability to have sex and to connect and in, in an intimate level is quite reduced. It's all, It feels like a form of sexual repression for some, not for everybody, but for some. Mm, that's really interesting. I'm just thinking again, um, we're, we're coming up to the top of the hour, so um, I don't think we've got any more time for any more questions, but I was just reflecting again on that, the first question that came from Pete Gregson. Um, there may be some people who will transition or medically transition who will be happy with that choice and who will remain happy with that choice. But for me, just having listened to what you've said and having read the CAS review as well about the Tavistock Clinic, there's a whole area of ethics this whole thing about clinical overshadowing and the fact that there will be, in all likelihood, a whole load of kids who that isn't going to be the case for, who may go through, you know, sort of like the the process of medically transitioning and who may well regret that they've lost their fertility or that they've got these this lifelong heavy burden on their on their body in terms of the chemicals that they have to take and and um, other other procedures that they might have had done so there is a there's an ethical balance to be had and from what you've said to me it feels like you it does it sounds like you're not opposing people from making that choice as adults no, as mature adults, well. if they're fully informed, but what, what, one of the things that we do need to look really carefully at is the puberty blockers and, and the impacts that that can have on people's ability to make mature decisions, having gone through that sort of process and discover what their what their sexuality is, even and who they are. Yeah, can I, can I just come in? Um, my yeah. my own approach and the approach of Genspect is not to let's say have a gatekeeping situation where you have to be a year in the opposite sex and all that sort of stuff. We're not interested in that. What we think is a public information campaign where people understand what is the impact of infertility, where people understand the heavy medical burden on the body, how you're continuously going back and going back and going back to the doctor to get corrective surgery, to get more corrective surgery, to reduce your hormones, to up your hormones. It's a medicalized life that really starts to grate. After about five years, it gets very, very tedious and difficult. After 10 years, there's a heavy drop in um, kind of satisfaction levels because it's so heavy on the body. And yeah. so that's what we want people to know, just so that people know it, we think they'll make better decisions. But yeah, yeah I just think until they're kids, until they're adults, our job is to make sure that we protect them from making irreversible decisions. And then when they're adults, make sure that they're informed to make their own decisions and to be perfectly mm -hmm. free to do their own thing. I do okay. think our job as, as adults is to protect kids, though. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's never any situation where we shouldn't be discussing the welfare of kids and making sure that we're doing the right thing, the ethical thing. I yeah. am going to just say thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been a real education, really informative, really interesting. And thank you so much to everybody in the chat for getting involved, for coming along, for listening. Please like and share the video, particularly if you've got mates who are on the political left, because the political left really, really does need to hear both sides of the, uh, you know, both sides of the coin on this issue, really. And that's what we're trying to do here at Resist is make sure that people are informed um you know that debate isn't stifled and that we can hear the clinical pers perspectives as well and then you know sort of um draw some conclusions once we've heard all of that so thank you so 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 much for coming on today it's been such a pleasure and um yeah thank you so much everybody we'll see you again next week for another episode cheers bye, thank you. bye.